Hello and welcome back. There will be spoilers. 100 films, 100 podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And Ethan, we are back with number 19 on the AFI Top 100 list. 1954's On the Waterfront. On the Waterfront. Number 19 already? Wow. Starring Marlon Brando. Starring uh, Marlon Brando. Oh, well, we could work on that, maybe. <laughs> but before we do that, maybe we should jump to a plot synopsis. Let's do it. So, On the Waterfront is the story of Terry Malloy, uh, a dock worker in New York who is connected with the mafia-run dock workers' union. Johnny Friendly, the leader of the union, runs the docks with an iron fist. Terry becomes involved in the murder of a man named Joey Doyle, a popular dock worker who plans to testify for the Waterfront Crime Commission, which aims to break up the mafia. Terry is used to trick Joey into heading to the roof, where he is pushed off by Terry's brother Charlie, who's Friendly's right-hand man. Terry had assumed that the gangsters would only threaten Joey, not kill him, and Terry expresses his discomfort too friendly. After the murder, Joey's sister, Edie, shames local priest Father Barry into taking a stand against the mafia, and Father Barry organizes a meeting of dock workers, hoping to spur them into action against Friendly and his men. Terry is sent to play double agent at the meeting. The dock workers explain how they are meant to be D&D, or deaf and dumb, to law enforcement, or else the mafia will kill them. Friendly's men break up the meeting and attack the men, and Father Barry convinces a dock worker named Ko to testify under the condition that even if he is killed, Father Barry will pursue the breakup of the mob to the end. Terry helps Edie escape the fight, and the two begin a budding romance. As the two spend more time together, Terry begins to soften in his D&D stance, and Terry seeks Father Barry's advice. Terry wants to tell Edie about his involvement in the murder, and Father Barry, and after Father Barry convinces him to confess to Edie, Edie ends the relationship, which is not surprising. Friendly gets wind that Terry may testify against him, oh, and they have K.O. killed, of course, and orders him killed unless Charlie can convince him otherwise. Terry and Charlie share a cab, and Charlie begs his brother to stop, but Terry explains how he too was hurt by the mob and his brother directly, as several years ago when Terry was a prize fighter, he was coerced to throw a fight, ending his career. Charlie gives Terry his gun, knowing that he won't be convinced to stay D&D, and knowing that it means that they will both likely be killed. Charlie is, in fact, killed, and his body is used as bait to lure Terry into a death trap, which he narrowly avoids. Terry tries to find Friendly and kill him, but Father Barry intervenes and convinces him to testify instead. Terry's testimony leaves Friendly abandoned by the mob and facing serious charges. Friendly threatens Terry that he will never be able to work on the docks again. Shortly after, Terry shows up at the docks for work, but is denied, of course, and shunned by his former friends. Terry calls out Friendly and the two fight, but Terry is defeated when Friendly's men gang up on him. The other dock workers are inspired and refuse to work unless Terry is allowed to. Edie and Father Barry encourage Terry to stand up and walk into the garage, which he does through sheer force of will, and Friendly is left powerless and alone as the film ends. Did you say that Charlie is the one that killed Joey? Yes, although I could be wrong. It might not actually have been Charlie, but Charlie was there. Charlie's there, but I don't think he can have killed him simply because he's next to Terry as Joey's pushed off the roof. Oh, I thought he was up on the roof. Yeah, that early part's kind of confusing just because we don't have any context for who anyone is. And there are a lot of people on screen in those first couple of minutes. And one thing that really 
I had to go back and watch after I finished because they keep talking about Joey as this young kid, young, good hearted kid. Dude's like 40 at least. Yeah, he's old. <laughs> it's like, did they not have another young person to cast or just standing around the set to do the one line? Right, I know. <laughs> so I think that helps add to my confusion a little bit. But yeah. be that as it may, I want to jump right into our pivotal scene because it's probably one people don't expect. Oh. As we'll get to later in the episode, this film is very famous, has a very famous line in a later mm-hmm. part. But I picked Terry's confession to Father Barry because that's really where the plot turns for the film. That's where everything really gets off its feet. At that point, up to that point, things are kind of just meandering, which is fine, right? It's it's building Mm -hmm. character and then the plot's kind of just spinning. And then we have Terry actually saying like, okay, I'm going to take a stand. And it's really for Edie that he does it. And that's his confession. And of course, Father Barry doesn't want to have anything to do with him at first. Until he gives up the fact that he was the person that enticed Joey to the roof. Mm-hmm. So let's take a listen to that. Wait a second, will you? Wait a minute. I just want to talk to you one second. Listen to me. You got to listen to me. Wait a minute. I'm the one that set Joey Doyle up for the knockoff. Take a walk with the kid and give it to me straight. There's nothing I have. Started out as a favor. A favor, who am I kidding? Let's do it or else. I want you to believe me when I tell you I just thought they was going to lean on him a little bit. I never figured it was going to knock him off. And I tried to tell Edie the other night. I really tried to. I wanted to tell her she's the first nice thing that ever happened to me. What are you going to do about it? What do you mean, about telling her? Yes, about telling her. The commission, your subpoena. I know you got a subpoena. Well, I don't know. It's like carrying a monkey around on your back. A question of who rides who. You know, if I spill my life, ain't worth the nickel. And how much is your soul worth if you don't? They're asking me to put the finger on my own brother. Johnny Funny used to take me to ball games when I was a kid. Ball games don't break my heart. I wouldn't care if he gave you a life pass to the polo grounds. So you've got a brother, eh? Well, let me tell you something. You've got some other brothers. And they're getting a shorthand while your Johnny's getting mustard on his face at the polo grounds. Ball games. Listen, if I were you, I would walk right. Never mind. I'm not asking you to do anything. It's your own conscience that's got to do the asking. Conscience? That stuff, that stuff can drive you nuts. Good luck. Hey, is that all you got to say? Come in. Edie called me this morning. She's coming here to talk to me. Come on, why don't you tell her? Huh? No curves. Okay. So the reason I chose this one, I think I expressed pretty succinctly, but Mm -hmm. 
this is where I started to find value in the film as a viewer. As I mentioned earlier, I was pretty confused at the way this film opened and was kind of playing through. In fact, I didn't even know that it was a corrupt mafia-run union until like two-thirds of the way through the film. Yeah. I, I was like, are these investigators? They're kind of dressed like noir cops. Are they bad guys? Who is Terry? What's his deal? Yeah, you're right. A lot of information and a lot of characters get established immediately, and it t- I, I had the same experience. It took me a while to disentangle everything to, to, to exactly figure out what was going on. It was the scene before Terry and Charlie are in the car together that I knew that Charlie was Terry's brother. Yes, that well, and I knew he had a brother in the mob, but I was I was like, I was like, which one is fucking Charlie? <laughs> which one is his brother? I thought it might have been the guy with glasses for a bit. Mm-hmm. It was it was just hard. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, it was it was a little trickier to again to disentangle than I think uh, I had expected. And I'm trying to think of a way that the film could have done more to alleviate that i think the only yeah the only way you do it is to make it really ham-fisted you know that's not to say that there aren't some ham-fisted things in this film oh yeah (laughs) i might be tipping my hand a little early here but i found a lot of the plotting to be a little stilted or kind of awkward at times Mm mm-hmm I also really just don't find Marlon Brando, young Marlon Brando, to be a likable protagonist. Yeah, he's, well, it, it, this is very in the vein of him as, uh, 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 what's his name in? Uh, Streetcar. Stella, Streetcar, yeah. I mean, it's, he, it, it's another sort of character that is like that, you know? Yeah, and that's interesting because where Jack Nicholson plays a similar character throughout, and I really enjoy that, he's got a certain charisma to his. yeah sort of bad derelict anti-hero sort of persona marlon brando just comes off as like i don't know superior in a way that's like i just can't get behind maybe that's just my own personal hang up well and he's rougher around the edges i think i think you're right there is that charm to nicholson that is different it's a it's a very different sort of portrayal of masculinity i think actually yeah um, with with brando and i think that it's less uh, we're less enamored with with that version today, I think, because Marlon Brando always kind of plays a meathead. Yeah, and and not and not necessarily like he's not a, in this film. He's not the worst guy in the world, but he's not great either. Um, and so it's yeah, it. This is a film that I feel like really wants to set up a a, a good versus evil dichotomy. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but I don't think that it actually really does that. It it has trouble and the waters are much muddier. And I think part of it is this is a genre thing. This is a this is a melodrama. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and so you ostensibly have to have the good character, the bad character. It's a good, it's a battle between good and evil that that, you know, the good will prevail. Uh, but it's going to be dramatic throughout the whole thing. But that's not really quite it doesn't quite fit into that you know what i mean right i think what you're pointing at to be more explicit is that father barry as this christian has a very good versus evil mm-hmm. in his catholic it's catholic right i mean they're crossing yeah, yeah, themselves things like that yeah it's they're very catholic 
mentality of good versus evil and standing up for one another and obeying the commandments and things like that. And for him, it very much is couched in good versus evil. The film's title, as a perspective title, used to be The Redemption of Terry Malloy. Oh. So they really did kind of have that bringing someone into the light or grace idea with the plot mm-hmm. and terry very much comes from a place of pragmatism or self-defense right i think one of his lines when he talks to Edie is you know points to his chin do it to him before he does it to you mm-hmm. so this is kind of like you have to attack in order to defend yourself yeah. and he comes to care about more mm-hmm. people at the end but i guess i'm not convinced that that circle is any bigger than just Edie? yeah yeah because he's not doing it for the longshoremen, right? He's doing it for her, and he's trying to make up or atone for being complicit in her brother's death. Right, but I I also think, though, that he he does have a moral dilemma. Like, he's not happy about the murder at the beginning. And I think that... I, I, I don't disagree with you necessarily that, like, it does, at the end of the day, feel very much as a, as a way to redeem himself for... Edie, but I also think that the seeds are there, and she becomes really the catalyst for him to uh, nurture and grow those sort of seeds of dissent with the mafia. But again, you're right, I don't think he's necessarily doing it for the longshoremen. I think he's doing it against the mafia. Which is kind of revenge for himself in a way, mm-hmm. because of him being a prize fighter, and then Charlie tells him to what do you say? It's like, it's not your night. It's and not your night, yeah. he has to take a dive, and he, ex- he expresses this to the investigator later in the film. He says, oh, I had that guy. I was holding him up for a half a round, and I had to take this dive, and I could have been somebody. I could have had class. This is where that famous line comes from, right? Mm-hmm. Now I'm a bomb. I could have been somebody. could have been the contender. Been somebody. So Terry is trying to bring himself back from the brink. He wants to be more than just a bum is what he keeps calling it. Mm-hmm. And that's both for himself and for Edie. But yeah, it really doesn't feel like it's connected at all to the larger narrative that the film tries to insinuate it in at the end. Yeah. When he's going to be the one that gets on the barge and everyone gets to go to work and Terry's achieved something for everybody. Mm-hmm. That gets confusing to me because it seems like those long term, it really didn't give a shit about him until right. he gets the crap kicked out of him. And I don't understand their. They're siding with the mob, even when the mob has been pretty thoroughly beaten by Terry. They they should be able to see the writing on the wall, and yeah. they still turn against him. The kid kills all his pigeons, and f yeah. that kid for real. <laughs> I know, and I I was a little distressed because I think one of those pigeons that they use in the scene, I'm pretty sure that was a real dead pigeon, and I'm oh yeah, it almost certainly was, and it's upsetting to me as someone who owns birds, you know, chickens. Yeah. So I I didn't like that at one bit. And it was unnecessary. Terry points it out as well. But everyone turns against him because he's a stool pigeon, right? Or a stoolie. Mm. But why is everyone defending the mob? Like, I understand the D&D, right? The deaf and the dumb. Because that's pragmatism. That's making sure that yourself is safe. But once Terry speaks out and John Friendly's going down, why do they still... I, I The sense I get is that, like, None of that is certain until everyone's behind bars, right? And the mob is bigger than friendly, 
and I think that there, I think there's a, this film really wants to set up another, it wants to set up like a, you know, it wants to say something about cowardice, right, and bravery, um, and that it's very easy to be a coward and very hard to be brave, I, and I'm with you, I think it's kind of, it, it's not clean, um, but it is compelling, I think, as a, as a narrative, but I think that it, it, it doesn't hold up very well. That's something I come down on as well, is that it does feel like a well-crafted narrative. Like on paper, I yeah. understand what they're going for. I think there's a nice symmetry with him redeeming himself from the fight and him trying to atone for being complicit in mob crimes against other people and right. turning on them and trying to be someone who stands out and does something about it and everyone kind of falls in with him. But... Mm-hmm visually and just on the screen i don't think it's conveyed very well like his involvement in joey's death is pretty significant he's the one that gets him to go up there but the film never really has him wrestle with that in a way that's personal he kind of says it in conversation we can kind of take him at face value or not and i feel like they kind of just write it off instead of making that a more agonistic moment because he really seems to not have known the intent but he also is in bed at the mob, so you should know these things that they probably are going to do something else. But it maybe it's the way he delivers those lines at the beginning. It's like, oh, he wasn't a bad guy. I just I thought they were going to lean on the bed. I didn't think they were going to kill him. And he doesn't really seem distressed by it. So that was, I think, as a in, ter- in terms of the, the narrative of the film, right? The film's trying to get across. I don't see that as coming across very well. Same with the motivations of the longshoremen. So I think maybe I can put all those in the same basket. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Well, do you think now is a good time to turn to our three questions? You know, I think it is. But before we do, let's talk about Anchor. Sure. Now the three questions. First question. First question. What do we owe to this film? Well, um, I I really think that a film like this this has so much or i guess on the i would say i should say it backwards rocky is a film that needs this film you know what i mean like yeah. rocky is the same sort of weird underdog story uh, you know of, of this sort of meathead guy who's changed for the better maybe because of his girlfriend he you know he stands up and uh, to to some sort of adversity i mean the stakes are obviously different but but it has that same sort of working class redemption angle, um, and I just really I mean man the Brando and Stallone really are almost dead ringers for each other's characters, um, in this. Yeah, I think there's a pretty clear through line between On the Waterfront and Rocky, and since Rocky comes at a later date, totally fair for us to say that, you know we what we owe this film is in fact rocky right so mm-hmm. doesn't rocky also do a little bit of strong arming for the mob yeah he's he's a uh he's like a debt collector yeah he's like an mob. enforcer yeah he's the muscle yes he's the muscle and i and i think you know rocky is a film that uh it, it's got a cleaner narrative it doesn't have the same sort of moral issues that this film grapples with uh, so it's easier to to watch, you know, and easier to follow. Well, I also think that more of it is that Stallone gets more lines than Terry does. Yeah. Like, I think we get Rocky working through the issues 
more than we get Terry working through the issues. Yeah, it's it's definitely m- more ambiguous here. Terry's uh, internal internal world, right? Yeah, we don't know what Terry's true self is because we almost never see Terry by himself. Mm-hmm. Which I don't know how you convey that, but maybe he could have been talking to the pigeon alone for some time. But instead, they have the kid there, and he's talking to Edie or Father Barry, or he's he's always talking to somebody. He's never really by himself moving through. It doesn't have to be vocal either. You can just have him walk around sure, and we can yeah. convey stuff. And I think they do that in Rocky pretty well too. Yeah. I So I, I think that in, in comparing this to Rocky, you know, Rocky's easier. Rocky's an easier film. And this, I think, is a more complicated film, which is why it's messier. It's more complicated, but I actually think the ending to this film was more simplistic than it is in Rocky. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but ending aside. Yeah, so that's interesting. I mean, I also got the comparison. That was my number one, not just because both were boxers or are boxers, mm-hmm. but that the film has its lughead character try to work through some stuff and make a better decision in their life. Mm-hmm. Very much what's going on here. I also want to bring up that they both have questionable sexual practices right. mm-hmm. or policies or politics maybe is better. In Rocky, we have the pretty much rape of adrian mm-hmm. in on the waterfront terry does a, a b and e <laughs> breaks and enters Edie's house yeah. and then goes and she's hitting him and says i don't want you here i don't want you here no more verbal confirmation than that and then he kisses her and of course she wilts in his arms yeah and, melts into him and yeah <laughs> which we, we i think we talked about this in in rocky also right you have to be 100% sure that that's what that person wants to make that move. Otherwise, it's definitely yeah. a crime. Yeah. And what is Terry's evidence that Edie really does want to be with him and loves him? It just it creates a a bad optics for people watching it and saying, oh, well, that's how you um, seduce mm, women. You just yeah. go and overpower them physically. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we also get the same, the, the echoes of the female, the main female characters, right? That they're both kind of these sheltered but very intelligent you know young women that you know have strong beliefs or whatever you know so it's very oh yeah. yeah that's very that's very true both adrian and Edie are quite sophisticated but also kind of mousish mm-hmm. we also should mention that Edie is in north by northwest she's the female yes. in that film as well yeah we have a we have a lot of returners uh we had quite a few returners from um 12 angry men yeah uh john Friendly is in 12 angry men Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the little um, one of the police characters is Twelve Angry Men, and something else mm-hmm. too. There were a bunch of yeah, there were, so there were a bunch of uh, uh, double ops here. Yeah, Father Barry was in another film. It's escaping me at the mm-hmm. moment, but yeah, yeah, so he was in one too. Quite a few people in this, but maybe we should turn to our second question. Yes, does this film hold up? I, I think that the sort of sexual politics aside. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's really compelling. Um, this this was a film that struck me right from the beginning as something that uh, just held my attention, you know. And it's and it's fairly short. I mean, it's it's what uh, two hours? It's even less than that. It's about hour forty five. Hour forty five. Yeah. So this is it's it's a tight narrative. So I think that the kind of I, I yeah I think it I think it plays really well for for an audience today. Um, and again, and I this is the thing I say every time, you know, in terms of cinematography, I think that it, that this does show 
uh, some pretty clear mastery of the craft. I think that what they're doing is uh, subtle, but but um, but sophisticated, if that makes sense. Yeah, I want to push back a little bit on the holding up for a modern viewer. I was talking to my father-in-law the other day. He was thinking about TV just coming out. Everything was a little bit more campy and dramatic and over the top. Mm-hmm. And it was really kind of them figuring out the form. And, you know, it's their talkies now. You don't have to do exaggerated movements and everything. Right. And I feel like there's a little bit of that in here. Not that yeah. it's like, oh, TV's brand new or anything. But the idea that it feels a little more over the top and melodramatic in mm. particularly I'm thinking the last 15 minutes are just extravagantly over the top. And yeah, for whatever reason, I really just wasn't connected to it. I think it can be really compelling to have a character as their sort of colossal effort just to walk somewhere. I, I really like that idea. I think that's been mm-hmm. used effectively in a number of other media, but for whatever reason, I just wasn't a part of that moment. And I don't know why I was outside of it, but it did feel really melodramatic to me. And I can't put my finger on why that's the case, but I certainly it, felt that Well, way. it feels awfully neat. You know what I mean? Like, it's a bow on something that I think, as careful viewers, you can see that it's not it's it's not really uh, resolved, right? Mm-hmm. But but it needs to be because it it's a melodrama, right? And, and I was kind of with you. I think that some of the least compelling parts of the film, actually probably the least compelling part that because it feels like it falls a little flat, is that last like fifteen minutes, the fight and everything. Um because it, it does. It feels it feels so so high drama in a in a way that I think is just less compelling today. We don't need that. We could we could have ended uh a little more ambiguously and I think that would have better reflected the rest of the film. And you should be noted that's what Rocky does, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I find the film to be at its best where you have Terry and Charlie inverting what happened in the past. So Charlie effectively sacrifices his brother at the in the past with the prize fighting. And then it's actually Charlie who then sacrifices himself for yeah. Terry in the sort of contemporary moment. So I really liked those moments. They felt not understated, but just not overstated i guess yeah but it's that ending that and how clean it is and everything's better and all the longshoremen are on his side now and it just felt it felt weird and kind of jolty yeah yeah so that just leaves one question do we care you know i i think so um this is one that, that i that i do think so because i think that at, at its at its core this this is a film that like really does the christian stuff aside asks us a a question about morals and like what is right um and i think it you know it asks what's right for the individual what's right for the group um but but really what's right and what does it mean to stand up for what's right uh and I and I think that at the end of the day, Terry, like this is maybe why the Christian-y stuff kind of falls flat for me, is because I think at the end of the day, Terry isn't doing it out of desire to be a good Christian, right? He's doing it out of the desire to like not be a bad person, um, and his motivations may be uh, not the most pure, but I but it's a but it asks a moral question. And I think it answers pretty strongly. Like you, you have to do what you think is right. Um, and what's, you know, if you just let bad things continue to happen, then you are culpable, right? 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I, and, and I think that's what it start. That's what the movie starts with, right? Is that Terry? It's like, oh, I thought they were just going to lean on him. Well, did you really just think that, or were you lying to yourself because it's easier, right? Because you you did then you didn't you know you were just complicit, right? Instead of actually you know taking any sort of stand. So mm-hmm. I so I I think that that message is is good and 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 important and uh, so yeah yeah. So I think the way it's kind of coming together in my head right now is that the issue I'm having ultimately with this film is that Terry does stuff for himself, right? At the end, he says, I'm going to go down to the docks and get my rights, right? His right to work, which is fine. I have no problem with stories of personal development, personal revenge or atonement or anything. I think when it's trying to be mapped to a more moralistic widespread like this is him standing up for the union and taking down corruption. And that doesn't quite align for me. That's the problem I'm having with it. So maybe I have a grudging respect or care for this film. I mean, it mm-hmm. made Rocky possible, the greatest sports movie of all time. Right. So I have to care about it. But I think there are some things that kind of pull apart a bit at the seams looking at it in 2019. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, and I do think that in terms of the, you know, of melodrama i think that this is a melodramatic film that i think has wider appeal than a normal because we we do tend to shit on melodrama right and think oh it's it's silly and it's too high drama and it's you know it's it's sensational right um but i think that this does kind of take that genre um more seriously yeah, and and so it, I think it I think it's as far as melodramas go, this is a pretty well crafted one, and I think that's worth something too because there are a lot of really bad ones out there. <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair, but that's all the time we have for today. We will be back in two weeks again on the AFI Top 100 list with number 18, 1927's The General. Yes, The General. And then of course we've got a few other things in the works on the Patreon bonus content episodes. If you haven't checked any of those out, I recommend going over there, dropping off a few paltry dollars for us so you can get access to, what are we at, like 70 or so bonus episodes as well? Yeah, I think it's something like that. So almost as many of these regular episodes as bonus episodes. You can double your content and you do that with just $5 a month. $5. That's pocket change. Pocket change. But until next time, I've been Matt Bazell. And I... I'm Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. Man, I could have had class. I could have been a spoiler. I could have been somebody. There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder, who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight, and that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast, and you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers.